It was December 29, 1890. United States Army troops took the lives of hundreds of Lakota men, women, and children in the dead of winter during the Battle of Wounded Knee, now dubbed the Wounded Knee Massacre. 131 years later, the toils from one of America's deadliest mass shootings still lingers today, an open wound in this nation's history. An inherited bottle of trauma continually passed down to the living descendants from this brutal massacre for generations and generations and generations. I'm Gabriel Petrazio, Indigenous Affairs Editor at FingerLakesOne.com. Today, we're recording a special audio program remembering a massacre, a roundtable on Wounded Knee. I'm joined by three special guests, John Kane, host of Let's Talk Native. He's also the host of the syndicated Resistance Radio Show, which airs in New York City and Washington, D.C. Jackie Keeler, a nationally published journalist and author of Stand Off, Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands, and Paul Winnie, a Tonawanda Seneca Nation member and lifelong activist. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Let's start by listening to the words of Chase Iron Eyes, an attorney for the Lakota People's Law Project who works with Standing Rock and a resident of the Ogala Lakota Nation, better known as Pine Ridge in South Dakota. In October, Chase Iron Eyes was also accompanied by Chief Bearcross and others while traveling to Niagara Falls, New York on Indigenous Peoples Day to speak out essentially against the Wounded Knee Memorial dedicated to a Buffalo Native First Sergeant Frederick Ernest Toy. He's one of 20 Medal of Honor recipients. These are our ancestors from long, long ago. And the, the truth is that the ghost dance movement and the Battle of the Little Bighorn, that's what precipitated what happened under Colonel Horseth's command there, December 29, 1890. And we should all know that indigenous nations, because it's indigenous people's day, it's indigenous people's weekend. Indigenous nations have fought on every side of every single conflict for no for time immemorial. But before America was a concept, before Canada was a concept, we fought on each side of every conflict here on our soil, which is now our soil. People that are American, we have entered treaties together in 1851 and 1868. The Ocheti Shakoi or the Sioux Nation entered treaties with the United States where we swore to uphold peace. This is the reason why multitudes at highly disproportionate numbers of our people signed up to fight for the United States in World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and whatever reasons Dick Cheney and those guys have us over in the Middle East. We're, we're, we're defending our homelands and our waters and our sacred sites, but we're under no pretense about the military industrial complex. We honor the bravery of soldiers, but we don't, we, we choose who our enemies are. Soldiers can't do that. So, you know, there's an adage about it is not for them to think. It is for them to do or die. We don't operate like that. Dick Cheney and George Bush are not going to tell me who my enemy is. I know who my enemy is. And it's not white people. 
it's not Americans, it's those who are colonizing our hearts, our spirits, and our minds to this day. I just want to pause there. And I know John's itching at the bone, I think, to hop in right off the get-go. So, John, I'll pass it to you first. What do you what do you think? I'm sorry. I, I just completely disagree with those words. I mean, when I hear somebody suggest that Native people enlist in the armed forces as some sort of fulfillment to an obligation to treaties or whatever else, look, the main reason Native people enlisted the high rates is because of the lack of resources on our territories, the poverty, the, the extreme poverty on our territories. Most of these enlistments are out of desperation because there's not a whole lot that, uh, that has been left on our territories for prospects of the future. There's an effort to maybe gain a, a little a, a bit of a foothold against the racism that Native people have experienced. The same reason that, that Black people enlisted at, at a disproportionately high n- a number as well. I mean, this to suggest, and, and any of this, you know, the other myth is that, oh, it's all a part of our warrior culture, as if we are so, um, like, like it's in our DNA to kill people, you know, to be a part of, uh, of you know, of, of this this military complex. And, and of course, he contradicts himself. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I. I, I completely disagree with the premise that um, that we are defending our lands when uh, when enlisting in the, in the U.S. Armed Forces. Uh, most of these are individual decisions based on on usually terrible circumstances that exist for Native people and the and the lack of opportunities. I don't I know that's not a popular uh, take on on that subject, but uh, but that's the reality. I mean that's that's the reality. It's interesting, I think, to hear those remarks in relation to Wounded Knee. You know, as we talk about Wounded Knee, because that's the purpose of his speech to talk about the legacy, right? What is the legacy of Wounded Knee in Indian country? And Paul was actually there. Paul attended the event in Niagara Falls. So, you know, I want to pass it to Paul and see, you know, Paul, what do you think about that? What do you think of John's remarks? What do you think of, you know, what Chase Iron Eyes said? Uh, Quickly, I tend to agree with John. Um, In my case, say my, my mother and her brother, fought in war, signed up for World War II. My mom was a Marine. I think in that case, they were defending our, our rights in that situation, in our land, what, what way the world was in that war, particularly. But um, yeah, I think war has the um, take on it that the people, like John said, need either the money or the free education or whatever they're going to get as a benefit from military service. Um, on the other hand, with being a person that was at the, that speech that he, that Chase gave was actually from the Veterans Memorial Park site that morning. I would like to say that there was only a half a dozen people there, maybe total or so, with in, invites to the press, and nobody was there. That was Indigenous People's Day. That was Indigenous Peoples Week, as declared in the city of Niagara Falls. And to go to there to see no respect and no interest on behalf of, you know, the media and and their bosses to give us any kind of uh, voice there. These people traveled all the way from uh, North Dakota to come there. And uh, I was just kind of let down by where we're at with Indigenous Peoples Day, with Peoples Week. And in regards to that thing, but I think that um, the monument that is there is only going to be taken down according to the, the Veterans Committee is if there is a national act, presidentially or Congress-wise, uh, would they um, remove the 
the monuments. It's sort of a headstone thing with a name written across it, an engraved Medal of Honor on it, and then the words Wounded Knee written underneath it. That's that's the monument in particular we're looking to get changed. So that's that's my feeling on that. You know, I want to pivot the Jackie too as one of the journalists in the room here, and and I consider you to be you know one of the leading voices in Indian country when it comes to coverage. Do you have anything to add based on what Paul said about how invisible indigenous communities are, even on Indigenous Peoples Day? We're talking a lot, and this goes to a a broader point that I want to bring up in our conversation as we remember what Wounded Knee really stood for was, in a lot of ways, it's, you know, it was an invisible conflict trying to whitewash and to erode at the history of what really happened at Wounded Knee. There are politicians who don't want to acknowledge it. You know, what are your thoughts on on that representation or lack thereof of the indigenous communities, like in the case of Indigenous Peoples Day in Niagara Falls, New York, and, and in the broader coverage that you do, especially when it comes around wounded knee? Yeah, I um I, I mentioned to you that I wrote a piece several years ago called We Are Still Wounded by Wounded Knee. And um it was published in Indian Country Today and, and other outlets. And my own personal history related to wounded knee is that my grandmother's uncle, her oldest uncle, he was a Dakota man. He was the Episcopal priest at Wounded Knee at the 1890 massacre. His church was the one where the victims were taken. And he rode out with Dr. Charles Eastman, another young Dakota man. They're both in their 20s, uh, rode out uh, for days in a blizzard to recover anyone they could find living. And um, my grandmother said later that that he, um, he, he lost his faith. And uh, you, you can read the letters he wrote to the bishop after that. And the church was decorated for Christmas. So there was a big sign in it that said, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so uh, he, uh, he died just a couple of years later. My grandmother claimed of a broken heart, but um, he's mentioned in the book written by Dr. Charles Eastman's wife. And um, he was their closest friend. Although in the movie, the HBO movie, uh, Bury My Heart of Wounded Knee, starring Adam Beach as Dr. Charles Eastman, they had a middle-aged white balding man play my ancestor. <laughs> and so um, my, my great, great uncle. But uh, yeah, but I, I you know, I, I agree with um, both of the comments before. And um, I should say that the speaker, um, Chase Ironize, is a very controversial figure in South Dakota. Uh, <laughs> he was basically driven off his reservation. He's gone hiding on his wife's reservation. Now he's very conscious. And you can read more about that in my book. I go into a lot of detail about the um, controversies around the Lakota People's Law Project, which is very questionable, um, what their activities are and how their funding goes and everything. So, because um, there was a lot of fraud that happened. So I would like to give that context to some of his statements. You know, my, my I should say my husband is, um, Mohawk and Seneca. My mother-in-law's family are from Six Nations Reserve on the Grand River. And my, my mother-in-law grew up in Niagara Falls. And um, her father was the Mohawk, Mohawk Bear Clan chief from Six Nations, um, Melvin Johnson. His brother, Harold Johnson, later took over that position after he moved away. And her mother was um, Mary Hill. Her, her father was Hilton Hill. He was a Seneca chief there as well. And, and his grandmother grew up at uh, Chiefswood. The it's now a museum there. So my mother-in-law has lots of stories about the racism that she and her sisters and brother faced being uh, a native family in Niagara Falls. She was telling me how in high school they had these eating clubs and native students weren't allowed to join them. Her sister, my husband's aunt Barb, she was voted maid of the mist. I guess it was a beauty contest at the time or something. And she went, she couldn't join an eating club. And so she formed her own with all the outcasts, everyone who wasn't acceptable socially. So it was just uh, really hard. And my mother-in-law, her first fiance, when she brought him home to Niagara Falls, 
he was a white guy and he got off the train and saw how dark her parents were. He got back on the train and she never heard from him again. The racism was quite real. I mean, this is going into the 70s, you know. My mom is full-blood Navajo, so she grew up kind of um, uh, totally on the Navajo Nation. I mean, when you live in a white community where you're, you're as a family, you're constantly have that racism directed at you, it's much harder than if you live within your own people and you're sort of shielded from it on a daily basis or in your school. My mom went to a high school, a public high school on the reservation where 90% of the students were Navajo, you know, 8% Hopi, 2% white. She, she left that experience, go, entered the world with the feeling of being part of the majority, that kind of confidence that gives you, right? And I think that's helped her her entire life. And my father, on the other hand, grew up on a reservation that had been allotted out and was filled with, you know, white people around them that were scornful of them. And he carried a chip on his shoulder his entire life. So it's, yeah, so these circumstances are quite devastating to our people to be surrounded by that kind of hate. And, and I'm just shocked to hear that there's this monument and, and any attention that can be gotten to getting rid of that would be great because it was, what happened was a tragedy. And, you know, in my own family, the stories that are retained, and even though my ancestor played a part in trying to save people, you know, it was still it took such a devastating toll on him. And, um, and I think that we, we don't appreciate that sometimes. It shows that intergenerationally speaking, right, hate, discrimination, racism is entrenched, right, and into the core of a lot of these communities. And that's kind of what, what we're tackling with when it comes to talking about issues like wounded knee. The idea that this is at the crux of that understanding and that relationship with white versus native communities. And I want to circle back, you know, you brought up the point of how shocked you were. And I know that Paul has been working very closely on the ground level as a grassroots organizer to, to get it removed. I'd like to talk about that and specifically look at the life of Frederick Ernest Toy, first sergeant of the 7th Cavalry Regiment, who was at Wounded Knee, who participated in that and is honored in Niagara Falls. For those who aren't aware, he was born 1865. He died in 1933. At the point of when he was being reviewed for the Congressional Medal of Honor, the nation's top military prize, Captain Winfield S. Edgerly referred in a letter to his top U.S. Army military brass saying that he is worthy of this distinction for his, quote, conspicuous bravery and coolness displayed while shooting hostile Indians. That's what he penned in March of 1891. And then shortly afterward, the U.S. Army was even hesitant and questioned whether or not Toy actually deserved this recognition, whether it was warranted or not, saying that, that his service did not specifically justify that award. But then in a second letter, he kind of justifies it further and provides additional context and details which then later led to him being one of the 20 recipients of the Medal of Honor during what was then known as the Battle of Wounded Knee, now referred to as the Wounded Knee Massacre. And so thinking about his legacy, he came back from the war. He was actually re-enlisted in World War I. He served as a commissioned captain, and uh, we're continuing to unearth that story ahead of the Wounded Knee anniversary this year, which will be a part of a story that we're putting on FingerLakes1.com. I want to go back to John, because, you know, you've been very vocal about Wounded Knee as a whole. You know, with that additional context about who this person is, this first sergeant toy, 
do you think that his plaque is warranted to be in public display in Niagara Falls? In some ways, it, to me, it seems like the Confederate statues. That's kind of the discourse we're seeing is where you're honoring people who upheld slavery and treason. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on First Sergeant Toy's legacy and whether or not he, like the others, should have their Medal of Honors revoked and specifically remove the plaque memorial that exists in Niagara Falls. Well, while I'll defer to Paul more specifically on, on this specific plaque and, um, and this specific individual, my concern is, is there's a tendency to silo every one of these events that uh, are designated as Native history. And, and by that, what I mean is we don't look at it in the broader context. And the thing about, uh, about this plaque and, and it being in Niagara Falls is there's a tendency to think for many people, especially in the East here, that all of those atrocities happened out there and that there's no connection here. And as I've indicated to you before, when you understand the role that New Yorkers specifically have played, I mean, I, I go back to Philip Sheridan, who was a famous Indian killer. And, and, and again, a close um, associate of, of uh, General Grant and, uh, and, and ultimately President Grant. He was also attributed with the saying, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. He was born in Albany. There's a huge statue of Philip Sheridan at the Capitol in Albany, New York. And you have to walk by it to go into, into the damn building. So there is a connection. I, I talk about the massacre at Wounded Knee in the context of the editor of the Saturday Pioneer, Al Frank Baum, born in central New York, who, who wrote what is designated the two uh, bomb genocide editorials, where he called for the extermination of, of Native people. And he said, why not annihilation? Their glory has fled, their manhood is effaced. Better that they die than live the miserable wretches that they are. He called for the extermination of Native people nine days before the massacre at Wounded Knee. Uh, and again, the role of journalism, even, even at that time. So when I, when I think about there, there being a plaque and a, and a modern plaque at that, sitting there at, at, these, at this veterans park in, in Niagara Falls, yes, it should be taken down. And yes, it, I mean, in many ways, it's even more offensive than, uh, than the Confederate statues because you are literally praising in a public display an award for uh, for a guy who committed a massacre a, a, a heinous crime for me a lot of this stuff is is trying to put this into a a more broad historical context and and understanding that this isn't just something that you know a uh, a military brigade out in in the plains did this is this is people from all over the country that participated in this, in this kind of thing it's the same thing with man camps you know putting in pi uh, pipelines and you know the man camps that began with with a logging industry these are people from good homes right from from good families who went out and participated in, in a lot of this desecration you know and the other silo that i that i have to mention because jackie brought up the dakota 38 let's keep in mind that massacre that took place that that largest execution in the history of the united states was signed by abraham lincoln the execution took place the day after christmas in, in 1862 which is a week before the emancipation proclamation becomes in, in effect so i think the, the the part that concerns me is when you you see a, a, a monument like that, you don't take it into, into the broader context of what that monument represents. And so I think we really have to make sure that we don't allow any part of our history to be siloed so that we, we don't connect it to what's going on. 
Paul is from from Tonawanda. They're they're talking about putting um, Ely Parker on, or they're they're putting him on a coin. And there's a lot of praise going to Ely Parker. But let's keep in mind that his close association with uh, with, with Ulysses S. Grant did not pr- protect Native people from uh, from the aggression that Grant would further execute against Native people. If you only look at somebody in a snapshot and don't look at the broader context, you don't understand what, what has really happened in American history. I think that's really fascinating. And I, I think not only based on what you said, John, it's not only that it's siloed, it's selective, right? There's certain histories that we're remembering and forgetting and, and some that aren't even taught. And I know Paul's been a very strong advocate about reforming the educational systems, just like I think most of you here. And, you know, Paul, I want to pivot to you here and, and get your thoughts on toy because you you do live in that area. and You've been on the forefront of this issue with specifically bringing awareness to the legacy of First Sergeant Frederick Ernest Toy and to get your thoughts on the plaque itself and the role it plays in your community. Getting back to the creation of this issue here, a friend of mine, one of my best friends, non-native, had uh, a co-worker for his in that area, tell him of when he was working up that way about this uh, this veteran park, and so he went there and saw it, and you know brought it to my attention and uh, another Seneca's attention, and then we sat down together and tried to figure out how we could bring um, attention to it locally. It didn't get very far. I mean, we reached out to Dakota people, um, we reached out again the the local newspapers, and um, we did get the city of Niagara Falls, one of their tabloid type papers, wasn't the main Gazette paper or Buffalo news media. And actually, Ken Hamilton, who wrote the article, an African-American, is on the Veterans Selection Committee and is in favor of taking it down. However, he's only one voice on the committee and one opinion there because the rest of them are Italian-Americans. So that's how the thing kind of started. And we waited and waited for the Buffalo News who tabbed somebody to start covering it. And after a year, you know, come to find out uh, the lady had some health problems in the family and got taken off of it. And then so we didn't get anywhere with a story. Then I spoke with John. John and I did a show like a year ago on it. But meanwhile, my understanding of the situation was this has been going on for 30 years or so. The outcry where we're at right now as of November 2nd of this year, there was a letter written by Elizabeth Warren and a number of other senators, congresspeople, directly to President Biden to rescind the medal. We have gone through 30 years of questions on it and campaigns and everybody saying everything about it. Me only in a local spot, knowing about this for the last four years or so. And then I guess the if you could visualize this brand, all this money went into this veterans thing. Everything's brand new. There's this kind of like stone gazebo. As you walk up the sidewalk towards this gazebo, the headstones, if you would, they're granite, nicely shiny, three foot high, right on the side as you escort you into that area. The separate ones are all separate. There's four on one side, four on the other. I guess one of the questions is, what, what do people think? What do families think when they walk by this escort of veterans and look at it and see World War I, Vietnam, 
World War II, Korea War, and then see wounded knee. What goes through those people's heads? That's that's a question that I would have of, you know, how do people look at that? I mean, the question is obvious, or the answer to, to the three of us is that it shouldn't be there. But what does it actually mean to, to those people? And, you know, if there is, why why aren't more people on our side to, to get it taken down if they express that, that viewpoint? That's the catch-all 21 question there, Paul, is what does this symbolically mean, right? What does this plaque and the memorial mean when you have it connected to the war to end all wars, the Great War, you know, World War II, which produced the finest generation? You know, you have all these different memorials and shrines, these people who served in acts of valor. And that's a big word that's thrown around in the military, specifically with the Medal of Honor's act of valor. And there are a lot of people in the communities when they talk about wounded need, that's not an act of valor. This is you know, it's heinous. It's it's a crime, a war crime. One other point that you get on the description of, of the medal award was when you also get into that, the description of his act, there's also the statement from the officer recommendation that he took aim and killed two Indians in a ravine when you read the rest of that history. So what does that tell you about the valor of that? Was it shooting two Marines? Were they men and women? Did he shoot them in the back? You know, so I guess I would throw that into the, the picture of, of his action. Unarmed, by the yeah. way. Yeah, right. That's right. They were unarmed. Uh, you know, one of the other issues is, you know, just the the general romanticizing of of war and killing is just really disturbing to me. And, and you know, and of course, it, it jumps right in, into the whole mascot issue, the whole idea of trying to romanticize us as these warlike creatures. I mean, it really disturbs me that that there is such an obsession. I mean, if you look at the American you know, calendar, how many of those holidays are attributed with killing, with, with war? I mean, it's it's amazing that that there is such a strong emphasis on romanticizing war. And that's why, as a Native person, I resent being pulled into the whole thing. I mean, what did, what did you see during Indigenous Peoples Day or the, the signing of the National Native American Heritage Month? you automatically see, you know, native veterans that are that are pulled into the shot. It's like that is what is promoted as who we are, that we are these, you know, like like we're so grateful to have been Americanized. And I find that really disturbing. Yeah, for me, it goes back to what I mentioned in my book, Standoff, which is these origin stories, right? You know, in 2016, I started in January uh, covering the occupation of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge here in Oregon, where I live, by the uh, Bundy family, which have been doing these armed standoffs over public lands here in the West, which I began covering for The Nation magazine in 2014. And so I covered that from the perspective of the Burns Paiute tribe here in Oregon for Indian Country Day and other outlets. And then I ended the year in December of 2016 at Standing Rock, covering the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And my family has long connections to that reservation. So my great-grandmother was raised there. And, but I think that for me, the origin stories are the key to understanding why we are marginalized, why there's a centering of these particular 
aspects of history. What John was talking about with it, this militarized sort of celebration, this goes back to what I believe Standing Rock revealed. I give this lecture about how the United States is still a colony in function, if not overt state of form. Like this, this is not their homeland. They're occupying the homelands of other people. Of course, you know, the folks coming from New York State and conducting these atrocities here in the West, they were not from New York State. That was the Iroquois Confederacy, you know, shortly before they were born, a nation that had stood for a thousand years. But what you saw at Standing Rock was you saw the military occupation made visible with the, with the militarized response. And I'd love to support and help Paul in his efforts in any way I can. We have had success in recent years in getting these monuments changed, particularly with the support of Black Lives Matter. A couple of really interesting ones have happened that I've been sort of part of covering, which is the one um, in Charlottesville, Virginia, the George Rogers Clark statue, which was removed this past summer, finally, you know, he helped um, conquer the Northwest Territories. And then also in 2018, the city of San Francisco removed the early days statues, which was very offensive. And I was there when that happened. And, and I do think these changes are meaningful to have these statues removed. I, I, and that's not to detract for them to say that we also need structural change. And certainly the uh, Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederacy have stood the strongest on this matter of sovereignty of you know, any of the nations, really, indigenous nations here in the United States have been leaders in that and continue to be. Until next time, I'm Gabriel Petrazio, FingerLakes1.com in Washington.